The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, welcome back to another intermission episode. This should be intermission number nine. Probably be a bit longer one than usual, because we do have some stuff to talk about. Unlike most intermission episodes, for They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, I actually have a co-host this time around. We're just putting this together as a little stopgap, because Daniel's going to be gone the weekend you hear this. So, welcome back, Daniel. It's been so long since we've talked, Lee. Yeah. We well, just finished recording for Stridulum, so yeah. all of those comments that you guys had, all those brilliant comments that everybody had on our Stridulum episode, all the adulation we received, we haven't heard any of it yet. Yeah, uh, I, I look forward to uh, reading next week how uh, how we change podcasting forever with that Stridulum <laughs> episode. <laughs> the, the format itself has changed around us. That's how great mm-hmm. that episode was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're bigger than cereal, man. Like, <laughs> like downloads in the last week. It's amazing how it just blew up over over that that last week. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, uh, <laughs> Weird uh, sci-fi horror movies from 1979. That was the thing people were. There were not enough podcasts about that topic. It took a, it took us 61 episodes to finally crack the code, but now I'm podcasting here from my orbital space station that I just bought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've become Richard Branson. You know, I get it. I, I, I made enough money where I am sitting here right now with Franco Nero, 70-something something Franco Nero sitting right here right now. I am paying him an exorbitant amount of money to wear a blonde wig. And just pretend to be Space Jesus. And to sit here and not talk on the podcast. Exactly. He's doing a great job. <laughs> hey Frank, nice nice to see you. It was it's really um we really respect your work. Don't talk. Mm. Don't talk. Yeah, this just just keep it on the down low. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, it's late. Yeah. It's wait, it's late. I'm drinking whiskey. Daniel is obviously drinking some things before I've now. Got, I've got I've got an IPA. I've got ah, you already. So, yeah, there, uh, I, I might have to go grab another before we uh, before we end tonight. So we'll see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Daniel came up with the topic for this uh, intermission episode. We're, we're going to be talking about some of the stuff we've watched in the last little while. We'll we'll start off with that. But the topic for this uh, intermission episode going to be a little different format than the other intermission episodes. We're, we're basically just going to uh, dick around and talk about uh, sequels that we thought were better than the original film. In thinking about this, I was thinking about sequels in general and kind of how we feel about sequels. And so I might kind of do a little bit of a general mm-hmm. kind of thought process about sequels and what makes a good one and what makes a bad one. And um, But kind of through the format of kind of talking about sequels that are better than the original. So uh, hopefully this will just kind of be a conversation and not like something that's like, I, I didn't format this. I certainly didn't like sit down and think about like, I'm going to make 10, a list of 10 in order or anything like that. Yeah, so this isn't, yeah, this isn't like a list show like, like we've done before. So 
Um, we're just sort of casually throwing stuff in here. Uh, I've, I've got a big list. Uh, I even doubt I'll get through half of it. We'll, we'll just see how it goes. But um, before that, we'll talk about what we've watched in the last while. I really only got one thing to mention. So um, I'll throw it to you, Daniel, because you just got off tonight before we started podcasting uh, watching Blue Velvet at the Alamo Draft House. Yeah. Blue Velvet, a film we might want to talk about on this podcast at some point. <laughs> no. Yeah, our most listened to episode is for Blue Velvet with Jack Graham, uh, alongside Blood Simple, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, the, the 30th anniversary like print is out, um, and it's um, uh, there's an Alamo Draft House in my town, and they were showing it, and it was on payday, and I went, fuck, my wife and I need to go see that. I did re-listen to uh, that episode that we did. I mean, not recently, but mm-hmm. a little while ago. And I think that um, I might have given the impression that I like really actively disliked the film. I stand beside everything I said on that episode, mm-hmm. but maybe like I came across as a little bit too aggressive. But I think that this also kind of comes down to again we're we're talking a little bit about the behind the scenes. You know, the process of podcasting these, especially you know when I'm like writing up plot summaries and that sort of thing. You know, I'm kind of marinating in a film for a few days. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of I'm kind of thinking about it constantly. If not constantly, at least it's sort of it's sort of on my mind. And, and Blue Velvet was a film that really hit me hard in some really kind of complicated ways. And so just kind of taking a break and then having listened to the episode and then like watching it again without that kind of like pressure on it. Again, I stand behind everything I said. I don't I don't think I was wrong, but I certainly could have en- I I enjoyed it more in the sense that like David Lynch meant for me to enjoy it. Um, mm-hmm. I also get to see it on the big screen and seeing it on the big screen is always a different experience um, where it's uh, a little details that I missed, you know, just kind of watching it yeah. on, on the TV. There, the one in particular that I just that tickled me that I, I wanted to mention on the, on this podcast was uh, the um, hardware store where um, oh. Jeffrey works is right next door to another hardware store. Yeah, like there's another hardware <laughs> store right next door, which is uh, like it's such like it sells Lumberton so well, you know, in terms of in terms of that context. Also, again, seeing it with an audience and hearing what people laugh at sometimes, mm-hmm. kind of disturbing. Um, yeah. You know, I think there there is a sense of like um, there are these um, like three very kind of academic uh, people that Shannon went to school with. Um, friends of mine, I worked with uh, one of them for, or two of them for a while, um, and I won't, I mean, you know, they're not going to ever listen to this podcast, so it's fine. Um, but, you know, very much kind of, you know, academic, kind of middle class, white liberals, you know, mm-hmm. clearly like the film, like Blue Velvet, don't understand it at all to the level that I do. <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, just, just kind of have, you know, very approach it in that kind of very kind of hipster David Lynch fan kind of way. Yeah. Which is fine. I don't. I mean, I'm not trying to say like, oh, they're terrible people, but it's very much like you know, not like trying to be critical, but it is kind of like you know, the process of podcasting and stuff, and the process of kind of like thinking about it really like critically and heavily um, from my perspective just changes the way that I approach film in some ways. So, um, well, well, like you said, just doing up the summary of it and every, everything, you had to really like jump into it and like absorb it and like really engage with everything going on on different levels. There's plenty of people out there and there's nothing wrong with this. I, I'd like to think I'm not one of them, at least not most of the time, but a lot of people don't watch movies and think about them when they're watching. Right. Yeah. You know, they just they just go and they absorb at face value what they're seeing. And if they like it, fine. If they don't like it, fine. But a lot of people don't 
consider necessarily consider movies on a certain level artistically. Right. So, I mean, th- these are these are people like two of these people have like advanced degrees in like literature and creative writing as well. So I mean, these are um, people who who have the academic background. I don't. So I mean, I don't want to pretend like oh, I'm smarter or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But it's totally just a matter of, of perspective to some degree, and just kind of like what you're what you're looking at. And yeah. uh, there's a there's a real conversation we could have about like <laughs> I was listening to actually our, our friend Jack Graham's podcast. He he just recently put a, a podcast with James Murphy of City of the Dead, and uh, it's about a three hour of them just sitting and, and bullshitting about like English politics sort of a uh, mm-hmm. you know, podcast. But they talk and they actually mentioned our pod, uh, Oi Space Band, like. 50 times or something <laughs> they did yeah. it wasn't 50 but it was it was quite a bit you know we we uh, space we got mentioned a few times so we like hi 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 jack and james nice to nice to see you but uh they uh talked a little bit about like middle brow and that and, you know what what a middle brow kind of artistic thing is and um, that's something I've been thinking about, and I might kind of write something about kind of down the line. But I think that like the kind of thing that like <laughs> Jane Austen adaptations with like American actors putting on English accents yeah. is middle brow. You know what I mean? You know, it's it's very like it's very comfortable for like kind of middle class, upper middle class white people who will go to see like movies, but aren't really interested in like engaging on a like uh, like challenging their assumptions kind of level you know and i think that well love it or hate it blue velvet makes you question a lot of things yeah I, here's here's a good example here here's part of the reason why i don't like the uh robert downey jr sherlock holmes films all that much mm-hmm. it, it's not even the fact that it changes the film and i'm i'm kind of a stick in the mud for when it comes to sherlock holmes i i don't like seeing the characters change in a dramatic mm-hmm. way like they're done in that that those films are designed not to engage an audience in actually giving a fuck about sherlock holmes and the actual stories it's it's purely oh look at robert downey junior saying witty things and being weird on screen yeah and and I mean that's fine if if that's what you want. I mean to they're entertaining great. as far as they are. Particularly, I think the first one's better than the second. I, I mean, oh, the second one, second one falls of, right off. Yeah, um, I, I have, I have, a, I, I like, I like Guy Ritchie's style, and mm-hmm. so I'm kind of like I'm down for particularly that first film. I think is 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 worth watching, but it's not really a Sherlock Holmes film. It's a kind no. of you know, it's a it's a Robert Downey Jr. action film with like uh, some some clever dialogue. You know, it's almost uh, it's almost like a steampunk pastiche of Sherlock Holmes or something like <laughs> it's, that. It's steampunk Iron Man. It's kind yeah. of what it is. Yeah, you know? it? yeah, kind of. It's 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 a uh, copper man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Brass man. It's it's solid dick is what it is. Solid dick, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um yeah, I don't know that I have anything more to say about Blue Velvet necessarily. Um, I I did I did enjoy watching it. It was a, it was a fun watch and um I mean as much as like something is kind of hard to sit through as Blue Velvet is, but um, it was it was really interesting to watch it with an audience and to kind of sit and you know for for Shane and I to watch it on the big screen and yeah. you know kind of you know Rossellini's performance is fucking phenomenal and you know mm-hmm. again, all the stuff I had to say about the film in our in our review, I stand behind all of it. There was none of it that I went oh yeah I was too you know I, oh I disagree with that now. There was nothing that I that I like actively would disagree with. I would maybe take it down a notch. Um, 
Yeah, I don't. I don't even think you necessarily came off all that negative. I. I mean, I would. I would take the the uh, the intensity down a notch and say like I now I kind of watching it with Alfie kind of pressure of podcasting it, you know. Even though we're podcasting it now, but watching it just kind of casually, it made me kind of see what you guys saw in it more. You know what I mean? Without kind of having that very kind of particular perspective on it, and also just having a little bit of distance from it, because it was like the first time I had watched it ever when I when we podcasted it. Mm-hmm. Maybe having you know a couple of months worth of just distance from the uh, from that first viewing kind of gives me a little bit more of a perspective on it. So uh, it's not that I think I was wrong. It's not even that I think I was like mean or whatever <laughs> on the podcast. I, I really, I think that podcast was one of the best we've ever done personally. Yeah. I just want to say, you know, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it more now than maybe I did then. And I can kind of accept that, you know, okay, that that's, that's really all I have to say about Blue Velvet at this point. Well, it's not all I have to say. I still, I'm seriously thinking about going through and doing a shot by shot of uh, of the uh, of certain sequences in that film, and like line yeah. by line almost, and, and kind of look at what's said and what's not said and what's in the script because I think that there's some really really interesting stuff kind of buried under the surface um, that I just haven't had a chance to really. I mean, you really would have to go line by line to really kind of figure that out. So yeah. If I ever just have like a week to spare, I'll do like a uh, a line by line of you know the uh, key sequences of Blue Velvet, but probably not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, two of the things I watched just to um, just throw them out there. I watched a documentary called Birth of the Living Dead, basically a documentary about the making of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, George Romero's in it. It's got some. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's uh, about an hour and. 18 minutes long or something like that, which is why I watched it, because I'm like, oh, this will be kind of, I don't want to say mindless, but kind of mindless and kind of, you know, just, oh, yeah, it's fun, it's whatever. It's got some filmmakers in it. It's got some kind of commentators. What I appreciate is that George Romero and the, you know, and maybe you know kind of more of the, you follow this more closely than I do. Um, Mm -hmm. Romero finally kind of saying, like, yeah, we kind of always knew there was a political angle to this. We just, like, we cast Wayne Jones and, and, you know, it wasn't, we didn't change any lines, but we kind of always knew it was going to be kind of a political thing. Um, yeah. Whereas in like previous interviews, it's like I knew I never thought there was going to be a political angle to this. We were just trying to make a horror movie. Fuck you, George Romero. You were totally, <laughs> like, there's no way you can watch this film and not go, yeah. There's some deeply, deeply political shit kind of buried underneath that. Well, well, yeah. When Dwayne Jones sort of fell into their lap, I mean, they yeah. they were like they ran with it. They it's like okay, we we got something here we can really do. Yeah, and, I mean, <laughs> there's no mistaking the significance of the white posse at the end shooting Dwayne Jones, and right. you know the the context there. It, yeah, you know what you're fucking doing. I mean, it, it would have been totally different, of course, if they had had the original actor who was just supposed to be this white '50s style hero yeah. character, right? But you know. It's a it's a it's a pretty decent documentary. Uh, again, it's worth your time. Probably my favorite uh, little aspect of it um, was uh, you actually see some kind of a black film historians and film you know f- you know film teachers and that sort of thing talking about what the film meant to them, kind of seeing it as children and that sort of thing. Yeah. And there's even a uh, a dude who's teaching in the Bronx. He's teaching like basically young black kids like film like literacy and he mm-hmm. teaches them not a living dead <laughs> and so like they're like nine years old and he's like you know perfect your zombie walk and that sort of thing and it's <laughs> you know it's just cute to watch nine-year-olds do zombie walk it's just a thing um probably the one like really big like criticism i'd have of the documentary 
It's just that it does kind of get into that like hagiographic, like you know, this is the greatest film ever made, and some yeah. of the movies. You know, like oh yeah, that first ten minutes is just iconic. Every shot is iconic, and I'm like, no, no I mean, it's not. <laughs> it's iconic because like it's an iconic film, but like it's not like like I mean, yeah. personally, I don't give a shit about anything that happens in Night of the Living Dead until Dwayne Jones shows up. Like that's the you know, to me, that's the beginning. I I forget like. Okay, you know, Barbara and uh, what's-his-name are in the Johnny. graveyard. The zombie comes up, the car does the thing, there's a little bit of running, and then Dwayne Jones. I always mm-hmm. forget that like that's like a 15-minute section of that film. Yeah. <laughs> I always think it's like three minutes long um, because I just, I so don't give a shit. Yeah, if, oh. if, any, if anyone, if any fucking hit up his ass fucking film professor or something starts trying to tell you, oh, here's the iconic shot that Romero put in this film for in, in the beginning here, and look how the graveyard is framed. It's like, shut the fuck up. This is actually not even a film professor. This is a like a filmmaker, like a horror filmmaker. Of uh, yeah, like yeah he's, a, he's, a, he's a fanboy then. Is, is yeah, he's he a fanboy. He's, he's a fanboy, yeah. yeah. I just wanted to make that clear. There are some, and there are some people, like there's this guy who writes for the New York Times who's kind of making similar comments, so it's not in any um, yeah. sense. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm just trying to say, like, you know, all these documentaries kind of get into this, like, because they're made for fans, and I understand. It's meant mm-hmm. to be, like, you know, I love Night of the Living Dead, and I want to sit and watch a documentary about how great Night of the Living Dead is, and I don't want to hear people say, oh, you know what, there's some, you know, I don't want to hear the criticism of it. I want to hear, like, how great it is. Yeah. I, I get that. I, I mean, I do. And I love Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead, oh God, trying to decide if Night or Dawn is the better film is kind of like the, the you know, one of those big questions because they're very different films. And actually, mm-hmm. now that we're talking about it, I, we'll probably talk about it here in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's an interesting question. But, like, I don't think that you need to pretend it's perfect in order to call it a great film. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, but that's that's the documentary. If you've got Netflix, it's definitely worth a watch. It's it's definitely worth a watch. Um, at least for, I mean George Romero is just I love I just love watching George Romero talk. Yeah. He's such a fucking hippie, and I love him for it. Um, <laughs> the other film I watched, I, I rewatched Blade Runner uh, for the first time in at least ten years. Now, do you know what cut you watched? Yeah, it was a theatrical cut. It's it's the oh, it's so the original the, theatrical cut. The original theatrical cut with the you know um, with the narration. With the narration, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I know there are like 85 different cuts of Blade Runner. I've seen a couple of them. I don't know that I'd ever seen a theatrical cut before. I think I bought it on VHS around 2001 or something like that, um, which I think was the was right after they released the um, – why did I buy it on VHS? Maybe it was earlier. Anyway. I know I had a VHS copy at some point, so I probably bought it in the 90s, and I think it was right after the, um, uh, you know, that kind of, like, director's cut, you know, one of those first director's mm. cut things came out. Uh, I'll just I'll just be honest. I mean, we might want to discuss this film at some point. Um, yeah. I never really gave a shit about Blade Runner. Like, it's just mm-hmm. kind of like, I actually really like the novel. I really like um, Janner's Dream of Electric Sheep. Yeah. Um, it's a very different story than Blade Runner. I'd only ever seen it like on a like a, a TV, you know, kind of a twenty five inch TV, and on like VHS. Yeah. And I'm just gonna say, like, every scene that happens in like Deckard's apartment is completely unable to see on a shitty VHS copy of this, or yeah. even like the official VHS releases. It looks like shit, mm-hmm. and I just never like. I just always kind of thought, well, it just kind of looks like that. Like, <laughs> fuck off, Ridley Scott. You made your film too dark. Um, <laughs> 
watching it on on the kind of bigger screen on the like kind of good version on Netflix, I'm a I definitely kind of got the visuals more. I was definitely like, you know, because it's always like, oh yes, it's it's a brilliant visual film. But suddenly being able to see like the characterizations between Sean Young and, and Harrison Ford and not feeling like everything is murky and completely invisible to my eye definitely improved my opinion of the film. Getting to the end of it, I, I, I was kind of watching it and I'm like, I'm actually, I almost don't want Harrison Ford and Sean Young in this film because the way more interesting story is the uh, the J.F. Sebastian and uh, Roy mm-hmm. Batty and, and um, Daryl Hannah's character, uh, Pris, and uh, the uh, the Tyrell story, like that's actually a much there's, more interesting story. Yeah, there's more there's more humanity and heart in that than than you know than Ford and they're 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 most like outliers of the real story. You know, like they're right. just sort of circling well, around. Ultimately, ultimately, what you're doing is you're taking you know you're doing this noir plot. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about this earlier. I was uh, I was I kind of went on a walk and I was kind of thinking about what I was going to say about Blade Runner. And I'm like, Harrison Ford just isn't a isn't a noir lead. You know, and I no. think that coming, watching all the noir that we watched for the noir series really made me kind of think Blade Runner is really overrated as a noir. It's not a very good noir. No. Um, and Harrison Ford isn't a very good lead for that. Like, he, Harrison Ford should never play Philip Marlowe. He's a terrible Philip Marlowe kind of mm-hmm. character. And the writing doesn't really support it at all and, and that sort of thing. I mean, so, I mean, I think that the film just kind of, those sections of it just kind of fundamentally, I mean, they work in the sense of it kind of drives the plot along, but it doesn't work as drama. And I think that yeah. the, the the romance between Sean Young and Harrison Ford is forced to a large degree. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like it's it's a very kind of, um, you know, it's 1982 and this is just something we do in movies in 1982. But um, I don't really get a great sense of chemistry between them. Um, as beautiful as Sean Young is and as good as she is and as good as Harrison Ford is. But Harrison Ford kind of looks bored to some degree. Like this looks, isn't his role. He, does, he, doesn't look, he doesn't look world weary to me. He looks baby faced and just right. bored sleeping through it. You know, you know who would you know who would I put as the cast for uh, for Deckard? I'd put fucking uh, Roy Schreider. I'd stick him in there. Yeah, he'd be great at it. Yeah, yeah. I almost uh, you know the scene in the film where um, Harrison Ford is kind of he puts on that uh, kind of nerdy guy voice mm-hmm. uh, when he's in the uh, when he's like pretending to be the photographer or whatever he's pretending to be in that that scene. I almost wish he'd played it like that. Like there, he's got some energy in that. Like, mm-hmm. like I mean, you know, Harrison Ford is like oh. There's a performance. Like he's actually doing something interesting. Um, I almost wish he'd played like like that was just what the Deckard character was. Like, oh yeah, I'm this Blade Runner. I go around and I kill these these replicants, but I'm actually I kinda sound like an accountant. Way more interesting than this like kinda, you know, like look at me, you know, eat noodles from a I mean, I don't know. it's just kinda I don't know. No one ever saw Blade Runner and went, you know who's great in this movie? Harrison Ford. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's Rutger Hauer, it's Daryl Hannah, it's, uh, uh, fuck, I forget the guy's name who plays Sebastian, but, you know, uh, there's some great performances. But is it uh, William Sanderson, I believe? Yeah. William Sanderson. Yeah. Nicely done. Uh, who is, uh, Shane and I watch him and we're, because he's in Deadwood and he's brilliant in Deadwood. Mm-hmm. So I know you're never going to watch Deadwood. You're like, fuck Deadwood. But, uh, <laughs> I'm not like, fuck Deadwood, Deadwood but I, I won't I watch it at some point. I relented and said I might. <laughs> yeah. he He's in Deadwood and he's brilliant in Deadwood. So, uh, you know, if that if that entices you at all, that's kind of all I have to say about Blade Runner at this yeah. point. Uh, um, it, it was, I was, I really enjoyed rewatching it. 
because it you know it's always worth kind of challenging your assumptions on these things. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a great movie because of like the visuals. I mean, really, Scott does that perfectly. You know, and did you know in '82 this was revelatory. The special effects are phenomenal. The design is phenomenal. Like everything is great except like the story just kind of doesn't work. You know, mm-hmm. and it's not that people are bad. It's not that the script is terrible. It's just sort of like, you know, there, there's so much that's good in it, but it doesn't necessarily work as a, like, story. It works as kind yeah. of a, a series of set pieces. Like, all anybody remembers is kind of the beginning and the end of Blade Runner, you know what I mean? There's the Voight Camp test at the beginning, and then there's the, you know, Tears in the Rain stuff at yeah. the end, which is ad-lib. And, um, you know, maybe who will remember the naked chick and the scales and the, uh, the you know, some of the some of the well, stuff. The only the only other thing that really gets talked about is is the unicorn stuff and whether Deckard was a replicant or not. Which is the most boring question ever. Mm-hmm. Like I do not give a shit. It matters if Deckard is an interesting character. It matters, mm-hmm. but he's not. He's just fundamentally not. You know, the the replicant who who's going to live for four years and who knows he's dying and who doesn't know which of his memories are real and which are fake. Way more interesting story. Why aren't we following that guy around? Mm-hmm. You know, like that's. Tears in the rain, man. Way more yeah. interesting than, you know, Deckard swinging his gun around. I often find myself, you know, if I'm, you know, sitting back drinking and stuff and I want to see some good stuff in movies, I'll put it in, I'll put the disc in and I'll watch that scene and then I'll take it out. I won't watch the whole movie through. I rarely watch the whole movie through, so. I, it was worth a rewatch. I didn't have to pay anything for it because it's just Netflix, so I could just kind of watch the theatrical cut and it's kind of mm-hmm. okay, whatever. I know there are so many different cuts of it and people are going to like yell at me because it's like, <laughs> oh, you didn't watch the right cut. Fuck off, I don't care. <laughs> Deckard is still the lead character in all of these cuts, and Harrison Ford didn't suddenly become a more dynamic presence in this film yeah. because the voiceover went away. I get, I, I okay, the film is probably better. Okay, I guarantee you, the film is better without the voice. It is. It is. But I don't. It doesn't fundamentally change the film to me. No, it doesn't. Know? It doesn't. The only thing I want to mention is uh, I did a little mini uh, Tom Cruise sci-fi binge the other day on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to talk about, about Oblivion because it just kind of sucked and it's not even worth talking about. But I, um, I, I don't even know what it's about. I know I know that it's a title, it's a thing that exists, and I just kind of it, uh, it completely missed me. I don't I don't know what it is. I, so. I totally forgot about it after I watched it. I can't even really tell you what it's about. It, it went into Oblivion. Oh, is that the one that's uh, like where he's like the guy who's uh, repairing the like the robots on the planet, and it's like after and the I don't remember. I, uh, I Morgan Morgan Freeman's in it. Yeah, it's that one. It's that yeah. film. Yeah, I remember people talking about it, and then it disappeared. Yes. Yeah, there, there's a reason it disappeared because it sucks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the other one I watched is Edge of Tomorrow, and despite yeah. the fact that the title is terrible, uh, we talked about this on our Facebook group. Yeah. Hold on, Lee. Do we have a Facebook group? <laughs> we do. They must be okay. destroyed on site on Facebook. Go there. Join is there up. a better way, is there a better way to contact us than our Facebook? There group? is no better way to contact us than on our Facebook group. That is where we look for messages. That is where we respond to people. Apparently so we say this in every episode now. So, mm-hmm. um, Yeah, no, you and I talked about this a bit uh, on, on the Facebook group. Um, yeah, Enter Tomorrow was a terrible title, right? Um, I saw this theatrically. I didn't know what it was. I was just you know, like a friend of mine was just like, oh, I'm gonna, I want to go see Edge of Tomorrow. You want to go see it with me? Like, yeah, sure, no problem. We'll go see it at the Alamo. We'll have a couple of beers. That's a really fucking good movie. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, it doesn't, it kind of falls apart in the third act. 
I mean, I, th- I think, it, you know, it, it kind of, like, once you, you kind of get to the point of, like, and now we have to move the plot in order, you know? Well, it, it, it does the same thing that uh, Minority Report did. It, it does the same thing that does, where it becomes uh, Tom Cruise sci-fi action film in the, in the last yeah. in the last part, basically. And that's fine. I mean, you know, it, it still works fairly well doing that, but it, it kind of jettisons a lot of the really good stuff from the... A lot of the cleverness. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a funny film. <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh, I mean, it's 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 basically like watch Tom Cruise um, get, get shot killed. in the face a bunch of times. Yes, for all of the for all of the stuff where like you know fuck you in your Scientology bullshit, you know, mm-hmm. and fuck you for for being you know, brilliant Tom Cruise and yet kind of making me hate you for you know some of the shit you've done. Yeah, um, he's a phenomenal. I mean, he's really good at what he does, and. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow is like Tom Cruise doing the Tom Cruise thing. Like I, I totally buy him as both the kind of coward loser dude he is at the very beginning, and then also like you kind of buy his progression. And um, well, he he has the same progression as Bill Murray does in Groundhog Day, essentially. Yeah. Because you know, I'll say this right at the beginning: if you're looking for an original sci-fi film, there's nothing original at all because this basically just patches together a lot of different. <laughs> this, is, this is Groundhog Day with Space Marines. This is yeah. the, that's kind of what this film is. Starship um, Troopers I mean, and Groundhog Day. I mean, it, it's kind of. I mean, it's it's a video game, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it, it's 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 the experience of playing a video game where you yeah. screw up and then you okay now you get through the night, so you get to that checkpoint, and then you kind of figure out how to do that. And I mean, it's it's designed around that, and but it, yeah. but it's like really cleverly done, and it's it's uh, I mean. It kind of it came out to me from out of nowhere, and I'm like, "Wow, this is actually quite nice." And just, um, what's her name? Uh, is that Amy Rossum? Um, Who's in the film? I don't know. I can't think of her right off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, she's really good. She's really awesome. And and I and I love that at the beginning. It, it seems like she's uh, this unbeatable Emily Blunt. Emily, Emily Blunt. Blunt. There we go. I, I just love how you know she's just like legend. At the beginning, and then you see the reason why she's a legend is because she's basically been through the same experience Tom Cruise has been through. Right. And, because she just like they're all like, you just woke up one day and you're a super soldier. It's like, yeah, I did this a million times. Yeah. You know? So 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 they go through um, the they go through the same progression as Bill Murray's character has is uh, supposed to have gone through in Groundhog Day, where he supposedly lived the same day over and over again for like thousands of years, perhaps, you know, right. like, so, <laughs> so in that time, Tom Cruise is going to become like a grizzled fucking action hero instead of the coward that he was at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Right. I like the aliens too. I thought they were kind of neat. The original, yeah. you know, I mean, there, there's some, there's, a, there's a lot of clever stuff. I mean, you know, we're kind of talking about it. We're talking it up and it's not like a brilliant film. No, it's a lot of fun. It's a yeah. lot of fun. And, don't let the title get you down. Like it's it's actually it's it's worth a watch. You know, mm-hmm. um, is that on Netflix right now? It is on Netflix right now. Yep. Awesome. Well, if you are a subscriber to that fine service, you should go check it out. Yeah, that and Oblivion both came on Netflix at like the same time, and yeah. just avoid Oblivion altogether. And <laughs> I've forgotten what it's about already. Yeah. Uh, Hold on. Did we even talk about Oblivion on this podcast? I no, I don't think we did. Uh, yeah. But it's a perfect contrast, though. Really shitty, high-level Tom Cruise stuff and then really good, high-level Tom Cruise stuff at the same time. So there you go. Um, but yeah, I was going to I was going to watch Oblivion, and then I died later, and then I just decided not to on the next run-through of my day. And that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> although, although it's kind of... I, I will say there's something kind of weird about it. It's like 
there's some there's, there's something slightly creepy about the fact that you know you, you get to keep dying and coming back and and to slowly learn all the right things to say to the the female character to finally you know trick her into banging you basically. <laughs> well, that's I mean, <clears throat> you know, one day we should do Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that in into some detail because I mean it is like oh well if I know exactly what to say. I can get you to sleep with me, mm-hmm. which I mean, I'll, I'll say that like, okay, if I've had like a thousand years to to try out different stuff, and I'm just manipulating you to get you to sleep with me, that's one thing. If you're doing that, but you're doing it from a point of honesty, yeah, you know, where, you, actually, where you've like, actually learned to become a better person, yeah, right. And, and you're actually different. saying things that if everything I say is real, mm-hmm. and you decide to sleep with me, it's not necessarily unethical. But I do think that the like. Yeah, I've had this conversation with you literally fifty thousand times. Is probably something that I, I got to say though. Revealed. I got to say that though, is part of consent. I'm just gonna say. Yeah. That, you know. Although I got to say though, if 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 you've gone through it that many times, that conversation that many times, and you're still interested in her, that says something for her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, Andy, Andy McDowell. I, I mean, I get it. Yeah. Or 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 Emily Rossum for mm-hmm. that matter. You know? Yeah. Or, or Emily Blunt. Blunt. Fuck, I said I did it again. You know. Yeah. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. Most effective, Your Majesty. We'll destroy this Earth. Destroy it. Send Rick and Danny in wool rocket Ajax. So, just destroy it? That's what Ming said. Don't you ever listen? Well, there's no arguing with Ming. Hail Ming. Wait! You see those transmissions on the visual screen? Crow? Nightmare on Elm Street? Chud too? Black Belt Jones? Nightbreed? What's a critter? Oh, I've seen those things. Flash? I guess we could wait a while before the destruction. Yeah, and watch the movies. And talk about them. The Hemming Power Hour. Disobedience to Ming. For now. You can find us at Legion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At www. You know what? Just Google it for yourself. Just Google it, you bastages. Hail Ming. Breaking 2? Electric Boogaloo? Samurai Cop? Army of Darkness? Flash Dance? <laughs> <laughs> We might destroy the planet if it's flashed out. <laughs> Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be... Deadly weapons and body counts. 
the mathematics of murder and menace. The BB and BC podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B-movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Let's go to work. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. Implied that at the very end there, he's going to finally get on with like 
get on with being able to do that, you know, to, to finally yeah, yeah. pursue a real relationship with her, you know. All right, I think we move on to the sort of uh, main topic of, of this uh, podcast. We're going to be talking about sequels, uh, sequels that are better than the original. Yeah, since you suggested this, Daniel, I'll, I'll let you start off with a couple on your uh, list as it is and talk about it. Well, I think that this is kind of one of those things like uh, one of the screen. I think Scream 2, they talk about like sequels that are better than the originals, you know, mm-hmm. sort of thing. This is one of those topics that kind of like when I started becoming a movie fan in the late 90s, when I started like really kind of looking at like the online movie criticism when Inical News was new. You know, one of the kind of topics that, like, the nerds on the message boards were always talking about is, like, sequels that are better than the originals, you know? And they don't exist. All sequels are shit. (laughs) Um, And, I mean, you know, in 1997, you know, there there is a kind of, like, you know, you look back at the last, like, 10 or 20 years, and it's kind of like basically any movie with a number at the end is kind of shit. Like, I mean, you know, it's kind of, you know, the decent ones are few and far between. Um the reality is that like that's kind of I think an artifact of the era in which that kind of conversation started happening, you know, where you know yeah. you had these all these uh basically uh kind of horror flick ripoffs and you know kind of comedy ripoffs. Sister Act two is never gonna be as good as Sister Act One, you know, it's just never gonna happen. It's just a fucking cash whereas today, you know, we kinda of look at, you know, a lot of these films and they're more interesting because they're kind of designed as franchises to begin with. Or we've just kinda of learned how to do them better. And I and I, mm-hmm. I think so I, I say this because I wanted to uh to kind of point that out that, you know, you know, this conversation, the fact that we even kind of have this debate that still happens among, you know, people talking about film online it's really just because we all kind of grew up in the eighties and we all kind of have this like a sequel suck kind of, you know, attitude and a lot of sequels still do suck. I'm not going to say they don't, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly not like, I mean, uh, you know, I think in scream two, I mean, I think the, uh, where they landed was, you know, it's universal. There's never been a sequel that's better than the original, which is complete bullshit, bullshit. Even, even then. But for me, the, the one example that always, and I think they even mentioned this in Scream 2, uh, the one example that always comes up is the sequel that's better than the original is Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Mm-hmm. Where as much as I like the first one, it's basically, and I've talked about this on the podcast, it's basically a slasher movie done with kind of sci-fi justification. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terminator 2 is a much richer, more full-fledged experience, uh, has a hugely superior um, kind of philosophical basis, and um, just fucking amazing action scenes, you know? Yeah. Partly because more money, and partly because just, like, fuck. And special effects, uh, brilliant. I mean, Terminator 2 Judgment Day is actually one of my kind of, like, top movies that just, like, I've seen that movie many, many, many times. It's just, so for me, that's always the go-to sequel better than the original movie. And uh, it's just between that kind of, like, 80s and early 90s time period where people would say, oh, there's never been a sequel. It's like, you turn into Judgment Day, fuck off. And that's <laughs> the end of that conversation as far as I'm concerned. And in any film that uh, features the only Guns N' Roses song that I can stand, that I can actually say I like, is, uh, you know, you're doing something right. <laughs> I can't I can't hear that song without thinking of Terminator 2. Yeah. And then, like, a red-headed kid with a mullet, and he's somehow <laughs> only slightly obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, I don't want to shoot him in the face the whole time. And that's, that's kind of a, a triumph in and of itself, right? Yeah. You're not Seth Green. I don't want to break your neck. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
hacking ATMs with a uh, with with a laptop. You know, man, mm-hmm. we got a determiner too on this podcast mm-hmm. at some point. Um, that might be a you know. I do a live commentary on Terminator Two. Yeah. Like that, that would be a lot of fun to sit and just like reminisce about watching Terminator Two when I was eleven years old you know, <laughs> for two hours. I, I mean, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a few of them, but uh, that, that's kind of the one that you know, kind of always jumps out at me. Is like that's the obvious counterexample that violates even the rules of people who say you know sequels can't be better than the originals. Um, and I do have a, another list, but I, I'm wondering if you have any uh, kind of particular ones that jump out at you. One I'll mention uh, right away is uh, Blade Two. Uh, oh, uh, disagree. <laughs> really? I, I I need to if you if you say it's good, I need to rewatch it. I watched it once in theaters and thought it was stupid as shit. I actually do prefer the first Blade movie. Oh well, uh, I, I will agree it's a stupid movie, but I just find the action way better. I find the characters way better. I find the imagination between uh, behind the uh, Reaper vampires a lot more interesting. It's got that Guillermo del Toro touch before he became, you know, super famous and everyone started yeah. sucking his dick on every movie he made. It does have Danny John Jules in it, who's the cat on Red Dwarf. So, the, oh, it, you know, I, I will give it that. Who does he play in that? He's one of the one of the mercenary vampire guys. Oh, that's him. Holy shit. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that That is basically the only thing I remember about Blade 2. I saw that film theatrically, really disliked it when I was like 19 or 20 or whenever. What, what year did that movie come out? 2000 or so? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So I haven't seen the film in like 16 years, but literally the I remember there's a shot where there are some like grenades that go off and Blade has to like go underneath water or something in terms of like, and then the grenades happen. And I remember Danny John Jules is in the film, and I remember there are, like, a bunch of sexy vampires that are, like, trying to uh, work with Blade to, like, defeat the super vampires. Well, only, only, one, vamp- only, one, va- only one vampire is sexy. That's the, that's the female one. But then they, they have, like, her father, who's, like, this Nosferatu-type vampire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you, you got Ron Perlman as this badass racist vampire right. who, keeps wanting to, oh, yeah, yeah. who keeps wanting to fuck with Blade. Right. And I just I, I felt like it just moved a lot better than the first one. I felt the first one was just kind of kind of dry. I, I never really liked Stephen Dorff's character in it as the main villain in the first one. I I just I I think I think for me the first one because I saw the first one theatrically as well, and I remember mm-hmm. that that was a film that you know I would actually say like the beginning of the comic book movie is kind of the the blade oh, yeah. series. You know, <laughs> like that was that was the first like holy shit comic book movies are going to be a thing. You know. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like that's like the best thing Wesley Snipes has ever been in. Major yeah. League accepted. We will just kind of <laughs> let Major League kind of kind of be a thing. Um, <laughs> Not Passenger sixty seven or whatever the fuck that one is. 50, passenger fifty seven. My God, yeah, like, yeah. No, there's a man. Oh, the dream of the nineties is alive tonight. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I if you if you say it's better, I I probably need to go and revisit all those films and and just kind of kind of look at it. I think uh, for me at least, uh, part of the uh, like um, the 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 glamour kind of fell off the Blade Two, you know, the the, the Del Toro reference when Hellboy happened, and that's kind of like, well, that's kind of what he was trying to do to begin with. But you know, well, yeah, you see in a lot of Del Toro's early movies, like he's working through his stuff, and then when he finally got got Hellboy, it's like, oh, Del Toro everywhere all the time, you yeah. know, like. I, I'm wondering, and this, the, the fact that your first was a comic book movie kind of makes um, makes you just kind of go straight to this. Um, the obvious counterexample to all of the like sequel suck thing is like 
the first of every comic book franchise is kind of the sucky version, right? You know, um, um, except for the Avengers. I haven't seen the second Avengers movie, and there's a reason for that. Um, <laughs> actually, the uh, the one big counter example that I would give, and and no one's going to agree with me on this. Get ready for the hate mail. I'm about to say this. Um, I think Batman Begins is the best of the Nolan uh, Batman films. Really? I think The Dark Knight is kind of a dumb movie with a brilliant performance in it. You know, I think yeah. I think Heath Ledger is brilliant, but if you take him out of it, or if you just kind of say, okay, let's pretend that that performance isn't as great as it is, you know. And then just look at it on a script level and on like the rest of the film level. Heath Ledger definitely elevates that film above like anything that you could ever imagine. But outside of his performance, the film was really, really dumb. I mean, it's just it it really doesn't work at all on a like narrative structure level. It's it's kind of Nolan playing with basically. I mean, like like uh, the Gary Oldman reveal, like I was alive the whole time, bitches, you know, mm-hmm. um, sort of thing, which just strikes me as like the like the, you know, it's almost like a Scooby Doo reveal. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, okay, I can you know, see that. I can see that. Um, you know, the the, the the this kind of like. Um, <laughs> sophomore philosophy major uh, approach to anarchism, you know, an yeah. approach to, 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 you know, kind of uh, political theory and that sort of thing. And don't even get me started on how terrible uh, the Dark Knight Rises is. Oh, that's that horrible. Yeah. Awful. But I, I think, I think the Dark Knight, I don't hate the Dark Knight as a film. And I think Heath Ledger's performance is so good that it does kind of make the film rise above, but like as a film, as a kind of like Christopher Nolan, like, directed vehicle, I still think Batman Begins is, like, the best of those three. Although, I'm also not a huge Nolan fan, and I think that he's just got an aesthetic sense that I'm just kind of, like, I'm not quite on board with, you know, so... Okay. Um, but that would be the um, the one kind of counterexample, the one obvious counterexample to the uh, sequels are always better, at least for me, and I understand that that's controversial even at that point. Um, I think the most Obviously. Oh, and um, the first uh, Christopher Superman movie, I think, is the best of those four. Okay. I could probably agree with that one, honestly. Um, I mean, Superman 2 is great. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's not great. And the first Superman film does have its issues. If you ask me, like, if you made me, like, put money down on one or the other, I still go for the first one just because it's the first one. But it also, like, the big problems with the first one is that it has to spend an hour setting up Superman, right? Instead of just like having Superman be a thing, whereas to, one, yeah, get to like explore like Superman with and without his powers and all that sort of thing. So, see, uh, see, here's here's the reason I didn't like. Okay, where 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 I rate the the Dark Knight a bit more than Batman Begins is that sure. um, as much as the origin story in, in Batman Begins is done pretty in in my opinion pretty much note perfect. I know yeah. that origin story really well. I've seen it in... Essentially, uh, you've seen shades of it in some of the comics. Um, you've seen shades of it in the animated series, which for me is still my definitive Batman. I mean, that that is Batman for me, is the animated sure. series. With Superman, you never really had that big cinematic origin story before, so um, it really works well. Like That movie does capture like the kind of pure, innocent wonder of like the actual comic books to a certain degree mm-hmm. that I think does work really well. Part two is, it's like, okay, we got the origin story over with. Now we can really start doing all the superhero shit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, okay, I, I can see that. Uh, although, you know, part two, like you said, part two is excellent as well, and I love Terrence Stamp and that. And <laughs> yeah. 
Well, obviously. No, there, there's some... I mean, um, I think we're broadly in agreement on that. The other... Uh, what I think is one of the, the greatest of the um, the superhero movies of kind of the, the, the last 15 years is uh, Spider-Man 2, which mm-hmm. I think is, is the best of the... I mean, clearly the best of the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films, but yeah. I think a legitimately great film. The first one... The first Spider-Man film was... Huge. I mean, I don't know if you remember back in 2002 when that thing yeah. came out. It was massive in a way that I don't think anybody predicted it was going to be that huge. And then the second one was even bigger. But that second film is um, really emotionally heart-wrenching in a lot mm-hmm. of ways and really, really interesting. And um, I think we, we kind of uh, have kind of gotten to the point where we kind of shit on those all three of those films to some degree. They're fucking earnest as fuck. I mean, it's Sam Raimi really with his heart on his sleeve. And the third film sucks donkey balls on yeah. so many levels. Yeah, the third um, the third film is uh, two films crammed into one and two not-too-good films crammed into one. This is... I mean, the third film should have been about Sandman. It should have just been mm-hmm. the Sandman story. I mean, it shouldn't have even been called Spider-Man. It should have been Sandman, and then, like, Spider-Man shows up and... You know, it's all about, like, this kind of sympathetic villain character. I mean, it should have been, like, almost like how they do, like, the Catwoman film, you know, where where she's kind of a, well, let's not even talk about how terrible no. that is. But the, the idea of, like, you could hypothetically do a Catwoman film that is kind of about how she's morally ambiguous. Yeah. You could do a Sandman film that's like that, and Thomas Hayden Church is brilliant in that movie, and he's completely wasted because that movie is terrible. Yeah, the the Venom thing should have been a subplot that was resolved in the fourth movie, is what that should, if you were going to yeah. do him at all. I just, all, all I have to say about Spider-Man 3 is jazz fingers. Yeah, um, emo, yeah. emo Spider-Man looking like some friggin' reject from my chemical, chemical romance or some bullshit, and just, you know, uh, no thanks. The other uh, comic book uh, sequel that I'll, uh, you know, kind of, kind of bring up is I think Iron Man 3 is the best of the Iron Man Hmm. Well, it's better than part two, that's for sure. I'll say that. Uh, well, part two is terrible. But, yeah. I mean, part two is terrible. I mean, uh, again, our buddy Jack has his opinions about yeah. the first Iron Man film, and I agree with everything Jack has to say, but I still kind of like the film, despite the fact that I find it politically repugnant. I think the third film, kind of like once you look at like Tony Stark as a character, and kind of see where he's been kind of after the first Avengers film, mm-hmm. and then that kind of PTSD thing, and then like you strip away his armor and you like make him kind of just go out and be clever. The third Iron Man film is basically let's follow Robert Downey Jr. around and be clever. Yeah, and I'm down, I I, I kind of love that. I kind of I'm I'm down for that. Well, it's, you know, it's so. Shane Black, so you you've got the uh, kiss kiss bang bang thing going going on again, pretty much. We've got that first that first lethal weapon film. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then the the longest good night. God, we should do a Shane Black episode sometime. I mm. totally talk about. It. I could, I I kind of love Shane Black. I just think he's great. Like you know, honestly, he's, I know uh, he's redoing. Predator. I know, I know he's. Oh, is he doing Predator? He's doing the reboot for Predator? Yeah. Oh wow, that's gonna be awesome. No, I'm. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is a movie we should absolutely mm-hmm. cover. I mean, the movie that that brought Robert Downey Jr. back to you know. You know, sobriety basically, yeah. and said, "Look at how brilliant this guy's going to be." I mean, there wouldn't be an Iron Man film if it weren't for Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which arguably, as our friend Jack would say, probably there shouldn't have been a Kiss Kiss Bang Bang then, right? You know, yeah. one, um, one of the one of the last good uh, Val Kilmer films as well. Yeah, I mean, a brilliant Val Kilmer performance. So, yeah. you know, question there. I've got just a list of stuff I can just start naming if you want to. Uh, one that we actually covered on this podcast, which uh, I think you might have forgotten, Zapped Again. Zapped Again, yeah. Well, that well that one, 
yeah, I did not put that on my list, but that one is better than the original. It is because it yeah. it, it, I mean, it delivers better than the original. It delivers for on reasons, everything for reasons that we discussed in that episode. So mm-hmm. go back and, and find our episode where we talked about zapped and zapped again, yeah. and we will describe all the reasons zapped again is the vastly superior film. <laughs> <laughs> that cinematic masterpiece zapped again, <laughs> the best movie about ripping women's clothing off. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's it's legitimate. I mean, it's deeply stupid, and there's, like, yeah. anytime you're talking about these kind of things, it's kind of deeply misogynist. I mean, it just can't not be to some degree. But it's, you know, within the standards of that genre, like, it's 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 a legitimately well, decent film. It's, it's downright innocent and kind of sweet compared to most of yeah. the films of that genre. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and, and the dude is, like, so nice about it. You know, mm-hmm. like, that's the thing. Like, that's, oh, man, I need to go rewatch Zapped again. I actually am, like, feeling nostalgic <laughs> for us talking about Zapped again. I, ha- I have one that you, that might be uh, controversial. Mm-hmm. All the Mad Max films, all the sequels are better than the original. Thunderdome, no. I wouldn't say Thunderdome. Uh, Road Warrior is vastly superior than the original. The original is just a basically it's an exploitation film that's slow yeah. in a lot of parts and doesn't really come together quite as a story as well. Road the Warriors just car chase sequences, mm-hmm. like yeah. you know, and um, but, but with no like narrative behind it. You know, the Road Warriors kind of the so uh, that's just I mean. I actually quite like Thunderdome. I think Thunderdome has some really kind of interesting stuff in it, you know? But if you ask me which I would rather rewatch right now, I'd rather rewatch Thunderdome than the original Mad Max. But, um. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I would too. Um, as much as I, I would say the original Mad Max is a, a better movie, Thunderdome has more going on, like just visually, and it's, it's, it's more of a feels like a, a whole world kind of thing, whereas the original film's very, very small and very personal almost in, in a lot of ways. The good, the bad, and the ugly? Um, okay, well, I will... I actually... I, I had this on here. Um, that's one where, where I'm probably going to be controversial in this one. Um, I'm going to say for a few dollars more is better. It's the better of the trilogy. No, well... I think I think that's the one that sets up uh, Leone's style a lot better. Um, I, I will say definitely that all of his stuff comes together a lot better in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. But The Good, The Bad, The Ugly is another one like um, 2001 A Space Odyssey where you really have to be in the frame of mind to watch it and sit down for the, yeah. almost three hours. You, you've got to be like, I've got three hours to sit and watch Leone. That's also one, seeing it on the big screen definitely changes the experience of watching it. Mm-hmm. Because I did get to see that on the big screen. And that's one where, you know, seeing that on the big screen where, I mean, basically just where you can't be distracted, where you kind of have to experience it as it was originally intended. Um, so, I don't know, this might be, maybe we maybe we do all three of those. The only man, from, man, man with no name films is a spaghetti western series. Who knows? Uh, yeah, that could you that could almost just be like you know we pick up the spaghetti western series and just do those all three for, for like a little mini pickup afterwards or something because yeah. I, I don't really want to I don't I, I want to do Once Upon a Time in the West for the initial spaghetti western series yeah for a few dollars more I like I like the interplay between Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef a lot better in that one I just think it's a lot more fun and it moves a lot quicker and it just I think it works a lot better in, in those sort of ways. I, I, I definitely say good, bad, the ugly, the filmmaking techniques and all that stuff uh, is far superior. I mean, that's like Leone elevated to 
like would you would you agree that Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is better than uh, Fistful of Dollars? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. So it still falls under the the sequel is better than the original. Yeah, yeah. We're just arguing about which one of the sequels is better than the. You know what I mean? It's the best of the two. So, um, and you know we're both agreeing that Fistful of Dollars is the 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 least of the three. Yeah. Most, you know. Yeah. So. And and that one just basically because it is Yojimbo. Yeah. <laughs> agreed. Uh. Army of Darkness. Army of is Darkness. That one where you kind of say, okay, Evil Dead Two is probably better than Army of Darkness, maybe. Um, um man, because Army of Darkness is a totally different genre than Evil Dead Two yeah. is. Evil Dead Two is a different genre than the first Evil Dead. You know, like uh, even though you kind of say, oh, well, Evil Dead Two is kind of the big budget remake of Evil Dead. Yeah. You know, the first one kind of has that like authenticity of of uh, just how it was made. It just mm-hmm. kind of gives it this this quality, but I think like if you're sitting down, and you're just watching it as a film and not like having this like kind of film historian thing. Either Evil Dead Two or Army of Darkness is a better film than than the original Evil Dead. I definitely agree there. Yeah, yeah, I I think I'd agree with you overall. I think Army of Darkness is much more enjoyable. Again, it's another example of like the director working out all this stuff and finally getting to a place where it's like, and maybe he didn't, he still didn't have the budget to make it look like the greatest looking fucking film ever. But I mean, he's really firing off on all cylinders in that film, like just the comedy and all all the stuff is just really great in that. So, yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that one. Um, here's a interesting kind of on that same uh, take the historical importance thing out of it. I think Clerks Two is probably a better film than the original Clerks. Yeah, and again, that's another one where it kind of almost falls into a different genre as well because it, that's like the Kevin Smith stoner comedy film right. as opposed to the first one, which is... And if you watch the first film with the original ending, is a lot darker and different film. <laughs> I mean, that's him like doing like the like Spike Lee independent, you know, black and white thing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, Clerks 2. I love Clerks 2. It, 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 that's another one that just... It just goes and goes and goes. There's not like a dull moment in it. Yeah, I, I would go and that, that. That's where he he had learned like he had just honed his craft better. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I actually do like the first Clerks film mm-hmm. um, and I think it's, I mean, obviously historically important. With Clerks, it's a, kind of like a series of vignettes, so it, the narrative structure is a little weaker, so I think with Clerks 2 as a movie overall, it definitely works a lot better and mm-hmm. Uh, and I enjoy that's the one I rewatch more. So I mean, yeah, yeah that works. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, you know the, the, that that's also a case where the the first one. I mean, he's definitely trying to be much more artistic. You know, and he's trying to mm-hmm. kind of do. I mean, the, the vignette structure is there for a reason. I think he also just learned more about human relationships by the time he made the second one. You know, whereas mm-hmm. the first one just kind of like there's a lot of like. Man, I don't quite know why these characters are acting this way, except that Kevin Smith said they should, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, once it gets to the the sequel, I mean, there's still a little bit of that because he's making kind of ultimately a silly comedy, and you know, uh, obviously, you know, if you've listened to the Oyster Space Man Chasing Amy discussion, uh, you know, I have some issues with Kevin Smith mm-hmm. now, but uh, but uh, but I think Clerks Two is probably a better film, so that was kind of yeah. why I threw it on this list. Um, sorry, I'm just naming things now. I just want to see what you have to say about them. Um, what do you think about Gremlins 2 is a better film than uh, the original Gremlins? No. Disagree. Um, I don't think so? No, it's it's fun. There's a lot of, you know, it, Joe Dante just going nuts and putting all everything in the, kitchen, uh, in the kitchen sink in the film. 
I still really love the first one just because it's that sort of Norman Rockwell America being invaded by these little monstrosities. And it's got that really heart-wrenching Phoebe Cates story about her dad coming down the chimney. And and it I think it blends kind of com- black comedy with horror a lot better than the second one does. As much as I love the second one, seeing Christopher Lee being Christopher Lee again, you know, after kind of falling out of the spotlight for quite a while. And uh, yeah, no. I mean, it's inventive, it's interesting, and I mean, it's about as good as a sequel as you could hope for from the first one, but no, the first one's superior. Yeah, I I put it on the list not even because I was necessarily going to, like, insist on that, because I, honestly, they're two very, very different films. Mm -hmm. But I think that what I was trying to think about was, like, the way to really do this, if you really want to make a sequel as good as or better than the original, is don't try to recapture the lightning in a bottle is to Mm -hmm. kind of start from scratch almost and kind of say, okay, what's another story we can do with these characters in this universe or whatever. And I think that that's kind of the lesson that people learned from that kind of glut of terrible sequels in the eighties and nineties. You look at, for instance, uh, like Pixar, uh, the toy story sequels, toy story two and three, both brilliant films, just as brilliant as the original um, kind of not even comparable just because like, even though they're all kind of about the same characters and a lot of the same themes and, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of thing, just because they they kind of went to that well and kind of did something new. They kind of found a new idea to explore with these characters as opposed to trying to uh, just kind of recapture the magic again. And I, and I think that's the death knell is, is, you know, when you're, when you're just like, you know, problem child too. And now it's like, Oh, you know, like he's with another family. And then that's the whole story, (laughs) you know, like sort of thing. Yeah. Rich and the nerds too. We're going to put them in, in Florida. We're going to pretend it's a brand new story. God damn it. No. Yeah. Go, go to our revenge of the nerds episode. If you want to see what we thought of that sequel. (laughs) Yeah. Um, another interesting one. Uh, what do you think about, uh, back to the future too? Uh, I'd say that's the sort of, the, I sort of fall on that the same way I do with, uh, Gremlins and Gremlins too, honestly. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, there's a purity to the original. There's yeah. no question. There's a purity to the original, both in Gremlins and in, uh, Back to the Future. I think I love the metatextual nature of Back to the Future too. The, the yeah. way it kind of literally sets a big chunk of its story inside the first story. Um, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting. So it's not even, again, not even necessarily a better phenomenon as much as it's like okay let's do something very very different because like you know back to the future three then just kind of goes like and then we're gonna do the same stories back to the future one except like oh we're in the old west you know no it it, it does what uh austin powers ended up doing where it's just like let's just repeat the same jokes over and over again right Yeah. yeah um man what's funny is like if you go to like the back to the future like fan pages like the wikis and stuff for like back to the future and because I grew up on those films. And I knew, like, a bunch of the, like, oh, there are a bunch of the, like, recurring jokes and stuff. But then you yeah. see, like, how deep the recurring yeah. jokes go. And just how, like, crazy detailed it is that I didn't even notice, despite the fact that I watched all those films, like, a dozen times at least when I was a kid. That's pretty fucking intense. Like, yeah. that. that's just, that, you know. That film series, Zemeckis I think. Is, Zemeckis is doing something really interesting to Zemeckis in those. Sequels. Yeah, the, well, that that film series. Uh, I mean, I think that was the film series that really 
helped me start to pay attention to other films like and like pay attention to what was going on underneath and like uh repeated motifs and stuff like that like because there's just so much mirroring in every episode in every uh, uh installment yeah. you know so right yeah another thing you know like uh when you when you think about like long term franchises you know kind of big uh you know star wars or whatever like which is the best Star Wars film? Most people say Empire, but you think about like the uh, like like um, that's where because it has like the prequels and the new sequel and all that sort of thing. But you look at like um, the Harry Potter films. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think many people would say the first Harry Potter is the best Harry Potter. People might disagree about which one is the the best of the of the eight, but hardly anybody would say the first one is the best of the eight. You know, Jesus and that's Christ, kind is there of eight, is there eight of them. Seven books get turned into eight movies, yes. They're... Holy shit. Should I name them all? I can name them all. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, it's uh, or Sorcerer's Stone, and then Chamber of Secrets, and then Prisoner of Azkaban. No, pardon me. Yeah, Prisoner of Azkaban is the, the fourth one, uh, or the third one, and then you've got uh, Goblet of Fire is the fourth, Order of the Phoenix is the fifth. Uh, man, I thought I could name them all. Oh, Half Blood Prince is the sixth, and then uh, Deathly Hallows is the seventh and eighth. And they and they split that into two movies. Yeah, and they split that into two. Yeah, yeah. I, I have not I, seen them all. I have not seen them all, but I read all the books. The seventh book was released, and I worked in a bookstore at the time, and so I just read all the books because I could just check out books from the bookstore, and so I just plowed through them all in like a month. I've never I've never watched any of them. Yeah, never never had any interest. What uh, what what did you have? Okay, well, uh, I'll mention oh. one more. Uh, uh, well, two more, I guess, comic book. I have three. Yeah, I got like three more comic book movies to mention. Um, Car- Captain America: The Winter Soldier, I think, is far superior than the first one. It's that's another one of those. It's just a very different film. You know, yeah. I, I I like both of those films. If you ask me which one would I rather watch, it might be the first one. Um, just because I do really like certain elements of the first one, but I definitely understand why you would say, "Oh yeah, the second one's probably better than the first. I, I mean, I get it, even though I'm not necessarily sure I'm 100 percent on board. I really like Cap's origin story mm-hmm. in the first one, um, and I do like the kind of more, uh, you know, like '70s paranoid thriller aspect of the second. But I just, I still like the first. I still, I do, I do still like the first one. Okay. Another one I'll mention is uh, Hellboy Two. I think that basically just expands on the mythology to to a much bigger degree, and I'm just kind of pissed that there's not a Hellboy Three yet. <laughs> Aren't they still talking about it? Like Ron Perlman yeah. is like seventy years old at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. You better you better get there quick. It's like Phantasm. It's like were they going to make that last film before uh, Angus Grimm died, and they managed to squeak it through, but. <laughs> Hellboy's gonna walk with a cane by the time you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could probably go with the Hellboy two is better than Hellboy one. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with that necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, Hellboy two is unquestionably a better film yeah. than Hellboy one. I still like Hellboy one, but uh, I wish that they just cut the uh, the the skinny pasty white boy out of it completely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they they realize their mistake. They're like, okay, yeah. Hellboy two. Where's he? Oh, he's in Antarctica somewhere. Yeah, yeah, he's <laughs> off. He's gone. He's, there's no more. Yeah, but Seth MacFarlane has has a uh, like extended part in the sequel, mm-hmm. and anything that's got Seth MacFarlane, you know, really like you know, 
Playing this to... arrogant, this arrogant German guy who's made out of mist. <laughs> right, right. Just, just, just anything that makes me listen to Seth MacFarlane for too long, kind of like uh, I kind of have a hard time like ranking it too highly. But uh, <laughs> I'll let it go. Yeah. The other one I'll mention is uh, X Men Two. Oh, I think far, yeah. far superior. As much as I actually do love the first X Men film, X Men Two is like. You, they let Wolverine be Wolverine, where that that scene yeah. where they invade the mansion there, and he just starts chopping people to pieces. It's like, yeah. Well, that one also kind of suffers from the, um, or, or the, you know, the first film kind of suffers from the like we have to introduce everything, mm-hmm. we have to kind of bring everybody together. We've got this giant franchise we're trying to build. As much good stuff as in that, it then kind of ends with the. And now we've got the magic CGI special effects show, and that's kind of all that you know. Like, what the fuck was going on? And like, if you haven't watched the the first Brian Singer X Men in a while, and that movie is sixteen years old now, mm-hmm. tell me what the last twenty minutes of that film are about. Well, I can I can tell you what it was about. I mean, the uh, Magneto there was trying to send that weird fucking. Explain it he's, with bullshit he's trying science. To, he, he's trying to turn everybody like the, mutants. The, all the Congress people and all the rich people into mutants so that they'll like you know be on his side, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That is such a like really stupid supervillain plan. It is, <laughs> like you yeah. know, the, I guess you've seen it recently enough, or just remember it. Maybe you remember it. I I kind of am on that. Like I remember the Statue of Liberty is involved. Once you started talking about it, and once I like challenged you, I suddenly remembered it. You know, sort of thing. But X-Men 2 is such the much more, like, socially resonant sort of thing. Because mm-hmm. it was kind of, at that point, they were starting to do the, like, connection to the War on Terror stuff. And they were starting yeah. to do the connection to, um, you know, the, the surveillance and, you know, the kind of the gay metaphor gets really, really overt in that second one. Yeah. Which, I mean, I understand why people go, oh, it's a little bit too much. But I think it's great. I think it's exactly where that series... That's, that's where that series always should be. Like, that series mm-hmm. is about, like... That's the X Men series is about being gay. There's that. That's what it's about. Like the you know, um, it's about being different in ways that are not immediately obvious to the outside. You know, yeah. it's always going to be a metaphor for that. You know, at least in 21st century. You know, it's always going to be about the misfits. And uh, if it's not about that, then you're doing it wrong. That's kind of my feeling. Yeah. And then I think X Men too. I haven't seen um, a lot of the more recent. Um, X-Men films. It's funny we're talking so much about these kinds of films because I am such a... Uh, I haven't seen anything lately. I was realizing this. I've seen nothing from the last like couple of years and it's because I've completely lost interest in any of these major mass media corporate uh, comic book movies. I've just, I just don't give a shit anymore. Yeah. Um, Can't believe Deadpool it. was interesting. I liked Deadpool, but that was, you know... I'll say um, From Russia With Love. Okay. Uh, this is the this is the uh, James Bond film that really sort of put the formula down in place. Yeah. And at the same time, it was still kind of close to Ian Fleming's stuff as well. It, you know, it, it hadn't gotten overboard yet. So I, I haven't seen From Russia with Love, so uh, oh. I'll, I'll, I'll trust you. I'm not a huge James Bond fan. I've seen a bit mm-hmm. of it here and there. You know, so. Um... Yeah. One of these days I'm going to sit down and watch all the James Bond films and, uh, you know, hey, podcast thread, all the James Bond films in order. Yeah. I'll talk uh, about imperialism. Let's talk about colonialism for like 18 movies. 
but yeah, th- this, this is good because it's still kind of a gritty, low-key, like, spy film in a lot of ways, but in, it, it establishes, like, sort of the James Bond-isms. It's It's got a really intense fight scene on a train of Robert Shaw uh, nice. that's really fucking great. And, uh, yeah, I, I just love And a lot of people will say uh, Goldfinger or something like that. It's, like, the really good Bond, Bond one from Connery, you know. But, nah, From Rush With Love is the best one, I think. Okay, let's see. Uh... Throw an obvious one, Godfather Part Two, I guess. Oh, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not even so, a big fan of those films, but I mean, that's the superior one. Uh, Kill Bill Volume Two. I always think of that as one film. I, I know technically it's a sequel, I, but actually, again, this kind of comes down to it. I, I wrote it down as a like, let's make a point about it. Is that this was one film? It mm-hmm. was split into two commercially. And ultimately what, what Tarantino did was he said, okay, all the big action stuff, we're going to set up the world in part one and give you some action. Yep. And then in part two, we're going to sell it all through the characters. And so if you're a film fan and you're interested in the character stuff, of course the second film is better. But you're right. It's all one film. It was written as one film. It was, you know, I'd, I'd love to see the, the, the version of it all cut together the way it was kind of originally intended. Mm-hmm. Although I... I kind of do. I kind of do like the idea that it's two films now. I, I kind of like yeah. the the slightly jagged nature of that. Um, but I, I wrote it down as kind of like, oh well, clearly that's the better. Like if you're gonna view it as two different films, that's clearly the better one. Yeah, I'll throw in the uh, the testament of uh, Doctor Mabusa, uh, Fritz Lang film. It's the sequel to his uh, Mabusa the Gambler, which is like a fucking four-hour epic that was split into two parts. That was a nice. silent film at the time. Like that's like the Godfather of silent films, essentially. Nice. I haven't seen that actually, so that's I'll have to yeah. um, check that out sometime. That, that's one we're gonna have to do. Uh, like um, I think this is. I think it's on YouTube. I know Mabusa the Gambler is on YouTube. Both parts. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm sure anything that's that. Oh, I mean, it's out of copyright, and if it's out of mm-hmm. copyright, it's probably on YouTube or the Internet Archive or something like that. You know? Yeah, and I, I'm pretty sure Criterion released it as well. I know they like I've got the Criterion of the Testament of Doctor Mabusa, but it, it's just like the one of the earliest examples you can think of of like the grand scheming like supervillain. Like he's one of the really first kind of supervillains in in film history to a certain degree. Yeah, and. It's just it's just a great film. Like it mixes uh, film noir with like horror, and um, I'm not going to talk too much about because we're going to have to do it sometime on the podcast. So, I always thought the first supervillain in film history was Thomas Edison. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I, I know uh, I know uh, Nicholas Tesla would agree with you. Uh, Fuck Nikola Tesla, by the way. <laughs> He gets really good press these days, but they were both, you know, they were fucking assholes. They were Edison and Tesla were both fucking assholes in completely different ways. And if you make me choose between the two of them, yes, Tesla's probably the better. But he didn't invent fucking everything that they say he invented. Like no, he no, was, no. Like, you know, anyway, Although I, so, I, I, I prefer the David Bowie Tesla from uh, right. <laughs> from the Prestige. I'll mention. I'm, I'm out of films, so you just keep listening to them, and we'll talk about them. I'm. I'm <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm, we, we've exhausted my list. So yeah, I don't. I don't have too much here left anyway. Uh, Devil's Rejects sequel to House of a Thousand Corpses. 
probably was that a sequel or was that just kind of like spiritual successor sort of thing? Uh, it's kind of spiritual successor. I mean, it, technically it's a sequel. It's got a lot of the same characters and stuff in it. So I count it and uh host of thousand corpses. I, I think it sucks. Uh, it's just a really bad kind of Texas chainsaw massacre pastiche. Really? Well, um, that was like, I mean, that was Rob Zombie's first film, right? Yeah. yeah. I think that was, I mean, I remember like at the time people were paying attention to it just cause it's like, it's what Rob Zombie is the director now. Like mm-hmm. he'd been directing his videos for a while and he'd done some like German expressionist, you know, cab cabaret of Dr. Caligari kind of, you yeah. Know, or cabinet. Sorry. Assuming yeah. the, the, the cabinet the cabaret of Dr. Caligari. That's something well, totally that's, different. That's actually a bit from uh V for Vendetta. They do, uh, <laughs> you know, um, there's a gag, but um, yeah, no, uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, he's doing, uh, you know, kind of German expression style, like music yeah. videos and stuff. And then he was like directing. And I remember, I remember people talking about it as like, uh, less like, Oh, this is a brilliant film as much as like Rob Zombie is directing. And it's yeah. kind of like kind of original for kind of that time period. Um, but then like, really it was like, Oh yeah. And then down the line, he actually started making good films, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd say Devil's Rejects is his best film, and it's it's far superior in House of a Thousand Corpses. So, sure. I put that I put that on there. Should we have the Dawn of the Dead, the Living Dead discussion, or yeah, should we I, save that? For... Well, well, we'll save that one for last. I, I okay, because that is on my list, Dawn of the Dead, uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. I, I threw that in there. Um, if you're gonna, for me, if I'm gonna pick one of the Friday the Thirteenth series, that's the one. I haven't seen them all, so I'll I'll leave that. Yeah. But you know. I think I think the first one is definitely not the best. Here's here's one from a series I don't like. That's a classic slasher series in the '80s, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two: Freddy's Revenge. I like that one more and more because that does have the uh, not so subtle like uh, gay subtext thing going on in it. Yeah. Um, it. There's just a lot more thought behind it. Like it, it totally throws out the mythology and everything and the rules and everything established in the first film. But I don't really care because. The movies afterwards all kind of sucked. Dream Warriors is okay, but and New Nightmare is okay, but for the most part, it's just like, eh, I don't give a fuck about Freddy Krueger. I never liked the series all that much, but uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 at least uses Freddy Krueger as a vehicle to talk about something else, so uh, I enjoyed that. Here's one I won't say it's better than the original. I say I enjoy it just as much as the original, and I think both of them just kind of are equal in a certain way, like back-to-back kind of films. Uh, Sanjiro, the sequel to Yojimbo. I, li- oh. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, it's more of a, it's more comical in a, in a lot of ways, but it just works. Uh, Toshiro Mifune just sells it. And um, yeah, I, I, I think we'll cover the movies at some point, so I don't really want to. When, when you get to a point of trying to just compare Kurosawa films in general, like you mm-hmm. know, it's ultimately like, like, you know, greatest ever made versus like fourth greatest ever made. You know, like it's kind of like how do you even how do you even talk about Kurosawa and like comparing him to himself? You know, it's yeah. they're all brilliant. Uh, here's one that is uh, the second sequel in a series, um, Quartermass in the Pit from 1967, which is the sequel to the Quartermass Experiment and Quartermass Two. That's the color Quartermass film or Quatermass film, I should say. And I love that one, even though. The special effects now are kind of like dated in that uh, '60s Doctor Who kind of way. Where <laughs> they, I don't know anything about those. <laughs> yeah, nothing. This is like giant space grasshoppers. Let's put it yeah. that way, and it looks kind of bad. We should, but 
we should put the Quintermass films on the on the to be watch list at some point. I would I would love to kind of well, revisit. Them yeah, because weekend. I mean, even, even though they if, were like BBC productions or whatever, like yeah, but know? they they do have a lot in common. Like they are the sort of uh, a spiritual precessor to like Doctor Who, and that like it's a lot of the same yeah. kind of ideas. So, uh, yeah, I'll say Adam's Family Values. Oh yeah, that's definitely better. Yep. God, that that film is just legitimately good. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't even have to see the first one and just see Adam's Family Values. That is a legitimately good film. Um, that's kind of I would argue that's the film that gave us Christina Ricci, like as a you know that that's where she kind of came into her own. Um, that that sequence, the Thanksgiving sequence, uh, pageant. I watched that just that sequence. I watched it every Thanksgiving. Like, you know, <laughs> it's on YouTube. Just pull it up. Like that's the you know. <laughs> I think you. I think you mentioned that on our uh, holiday uh, episode. Our holiday yeah. episode. I did mention that. Yeah. No. Yeah. Sorry. Just nobody listens to this show. It's fine. You know? <laughs> um, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Here, here's one. Oh where, fuck! Yeah. I even thought about that one. I forgot to write it down. Yeah. No. That's clearly no. I agree. Bogus Journey is the better film. You know. No question. And the final one I'll mention before we get to Dawn of the Dead, uh, Master of the Flying Guillotine. Uh, guillotine. Um, it's it's the sequel to One Arm Boxer, and I just love it better because it's it just kind of okay. We're gonna bring the One Arm Boxer back, but it's really more about this deranged guy who's the master of the flying guillotine who uh, is out to avenge his two uh, disciples who were killed by the One Arm Boxer. And it's kind of weird how it's set. Like, you almost kind of feel bad for him, but he's actually the villain in it. And he's going around killing all the one-armed people he finds in China. Surprising amount of one-armed guys, by the way, running around China at that time. Uh, well, with the with the number of, like, people with swords lopping off limbs, you know? It's mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, yeah no, I, I get this, you know? like yeah. it's... But, but it's cool. It sets up this, like, tournament fight where it just basically introduces all these weird characters who have all these weird, like, martial arts backgrounds and stuff. So it, it's kind of flashy and kind of fun and... Yeah, it's. It, I think it's just a better film. I enjoy it. So, uh, yeah. So, I'm uh, going to Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead is a superior film. There. I don't. I. I don't even disagree. Really. Um. I mean, this is and this is kind of the big question, right? Do you count the historical importance? Because Night clearly, as brilliant as Dawn of the Dead is, and as huge an influence as that has, almost by definition, the first film has a greater historical importance. It does. I, I totally, um, I totally agree. It is Dawn the transition. Is, Dawn is a better film in terms of like you know, but they're also again. This kind of comes back to that they're very different films. You know, yeah. Night is very kind of isolated. It's very enclosed. It's very kind of you know small scale. Dawn, despite you know only really having like four main characters and you know kind of a handful of others a lot more kind of about a society and about this kind of like collapse yeah. and that sort of thing. So, uh, I mean, it, it, again, it kind of is more like that kind of Terminator, Terminator 2 kind of thing, you yeah. know. But I think uh, closer, I don't think it's quite as... Because I think it's very easy to say T2 is a better film than the original Terminator. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that if you look at kind of what they were trying to do and what they managed to do, I think both Night and Dawn are right up, right up there. And I, I think Night of the Living Dead is closer to Dawn of the Dead than the original Terminator is to Terminator Two. I guess yeah. Is what I'm 
so I won't deny the historical importance for, for Night of the Living Dead. That is, in the my... The first 15 minutes are brilliant, and there are no the, mistakes. The, the, the camera angles alone are amazing. They're, uh, just, they're perfect. It's a psychotic shot, man, I'm telling you. Look Look how look at the motifs that uh, Romero uses as... Yeah. Uh, as uh, the the zombie crawls along the tombstones and the, look, at, yeah. look at that church in the background, it's just yeah. like oh, yeah. oh sorry, <laughs> I'm making fun of this guy that like will never listen to this podcast. <laughs> I don't want him to listen to this podcast, but okay, the historical importance can't deny it at all. Uh, it it is the transition between for me personally, I think it's the transition between the the old sort of golden and maybe silver age of horror to like the modern age of horror. Like it's the, it is the sort of direct link in a lot of ways, I think. But Dawn of the Dead is a better made film. It's better acted, better special effects, yada, yada, yada. It's incredibly long. Every time, if it comes down to a choice between the two, I would sit down and watch Dawn of the Dead all the way through before I'd watch Night of the Living Dead again. I just, I enjoy it more. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. I think for me, I think the, the one thing I'll put in, uh, there's a rawness tonight mm-hmm. that isn't necessarily there with John. Don, Don is more sophisticated. And it's, it's a much, comic book, too. But it's much less angry. Yeah. Night is angry. Mm-hmm. I mean, night, night is, and I think that that's, I, I, put, I put a really big, um, like, I really love the level of um, just sheer putting this, like, just... <laughs> screed on screen, you know, and I and I I do I do love that aspect of night, you know, that it it, it feels really really raw, and I mean, you know, in some ways it's it's kind of two sides of the same coin, right? You know, mm-hmm. where Dawn is more sophisticated, but almost by definition it's less raw, yeah. you know. So um, I don't know. We kind of run into that a lot where the first film. I mean, you know, a lot of the ones we mentioned. I mean, I mean Terminator, obviously, but like Evil Dead and. Um, you know, clerks um, kind of kind of fit the same category. Where the first mm-hmm. one is more historically important, more um, you know iconic in that kind of way. But then the sequel kind of pushes those ideas further and kind of does something that's more sophisticated or more well executed. So yeah, I mean, and that's ultimately kind of a judgment call. I, I'm not even. I mean, I actually agree with you. Dawn of the Dead is the better film. I'd much rather sit down and watch Dawn of the Dead again right now. Mm. But I still really love Night, and it's hard for me. Like, I just I can't choose, kind of almost, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have anything else to say, really. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's 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 after three in the morning. It's time for me to get yeah. to bed. I'm I've been awake for like twenty one hours. It's definitely I'm done. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, no, this is this is a great conversation and longer than the episode we recorded earlier today. So, yeah. so uh, it sh- should give uh, people a lot to um, all over. Um, yeah. Daniel, tell everyone where they can find your multitude of podcasts that you do now. Don't don't come find me. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes, if you were going to want to come find me, you could go to oispaceman.com and all my future content for all my podcasts which I do a Doctor Who podcast with my wife and a Red Dwarf podcast with my wife and a Firefly podcast with my wife. And hypothetically, there's going to be a homicide podcast that's going to start happening here in the next yeah. few weeks, and that'll happen with, with some asshole who you know lives in Nova Scotia or something. You know, that yeah, that fucking guy. I heard of him. Um, don't, don't go. Don't go check that out because that's just, it's just full of shit. You know, this is the podcast you want to listen to, or just stop listening to podcast. Go, go outside, smell the flowers. Just don't yeah. stop listening to the podcast. That's you know. take a walk. Tell your loved ones that you care about them. 
Yeah. <laughs> Go perform cunnilingus if that's the thing that you like to do. Yeah. Rather than listen to podcasts. Although, the beauty of a podcast is you could do both, right? Yeah, like, you could listen while you're doing you it. You yeah. listen while you're doing it. And, you know... We could start talking in NPR voices and put everyone to sleep, too. You know? um, <laughs> ASMR or whatever the fuck it is. You know? um, okay, so, yeah. Uh, get in contact with us if you so choose. We mold over a lot of stuff in this episode, so if you want to disagree with us, agree with us, make suggestions, we'd be open to it. Best way to do it is our Facebook page. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook. Find us. Join in. Join in the conversation. The trailer at the end will tell you where to go for everything else. And uh, thank you all for listening. Next episode is going to be Slither from 2006. I want to say it's James Gunn anyway. earlier than that. I think it's like 04 or something like that. Okay. But James Gunn, the guy you know and love from Guardians of the Galaxy now. And, PG uh, Porn, the guy who did PG Porn. Yeah. And Scream so- Queens, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, the guy so who used that, to date the girl who's on The Office. Like that's the that's uh, all you need to know about James Gunn. Yeah. Uh, so uh, thanks for joining me, Daniel, and uh, we will see you all guys again when we see you. See ya. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to us at iTunes and YouTube, as well as our Facebook group link, which is the best way to get in touch with us. We welcome all comments, questions, movie review suggestions, and criticisms, and we do our best to respond to everyone. You can also find us at Daniel's recently launched oispaceman.com, where you can find his sci-fi-themed podcasts about Doctor Who and Red Dwarf. Thank you. Drive through.